Welcome to Triple Take, the podcast where we talk to interesting people about the books, films, and albums that shape them. I'm Carla Jean Whitley. I'm John Hammontree. And I'm Matt Scalisi. And today our guest is John Poor, who is one of the founders of Secret Stages, as well as a musician and man about town. (laughs) I like that term, right? I'll take it. Yeah. So, John, before we start talking about, you know, culture and how it's influenced you, let's talk about Secret Stages for a minute and how it came to be. Uh, Well, it started, 2016 will be our sixth year, so it started six years ago. I wish it was a more interesting story than the stereotypical mm-hmm. guys hanging out in a bar saying, hey, let's do a music festival. Um, but, but so that, many good things start that way. But essentially, that's what happened. Um, myself, Chuck Leishman, Sam George, Travis Morgan, we were just all sort of coming at it from different angles. We all really were interested in uh, vibrant downtowns and, of course, really interested in music. Mm-hmm. We were always talking about bands and different things. So. Um, you know, when City Stages went away, it kind of created an opportunity. Mm-hmm. We kind of realized pretty quickly we weren't going to sort of uh, operate in that realm. And so we decided to really make it a mm-hmm. festival about new bands, about discovering things, discovering mm-hmm. downtown, discovering mm-hmm. the venues. Um, so, you know, like it just took on a life of its own. And mm-hmm. first year we were just playing catch up and we're glad it went well. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I will admit, and Maybe this is because, you know, you started shortly after City Stages. I came into it a little bit skeptical. Mm -hmm. You know, we were all waiting for something to happen, something to take City Stages place. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, this doesn't sound like that. Mm -hmm. And no, it's not that. But that first time I showed Mm -hmm. up, I got it. I went into a couple of different venues that I had not been Mm -hmm. in before, even though at the time I was writing about music a lot discovered bands that I still listen to. The Bear Out of the Shoals is the first that comes to mind. I was like, man, Mm -hmm. this is awesome. Why isn't everybody here? Mm -hmm. And so it, it, you guys made a believer out of me really fast. Cool. It was really fun. Yeah. I think, you know, when that first year, I didn't really realize exactly what it was going to become. And it wasn't, you know, I think people like a lot of people Mm -hmm. thought it was going to be a city stages replacement. Um, the name kind of, I even those first few years would miss speaking and say city stages when I meant secret <laughs> stages. And I think a lot of people felt like, well, wait a minute, this isn't nearly that big. And I think over the years, one, a lot of people have had your experience and gotten it. And even, like I say, like I've gotten it. It's, it took me a little bit of time to go, no, wait, we're doing something a little different. Uh, and it's got a place too. I think like when Sloss Fest came around last year, we were like, oh gosh, this is the city stages mm-hmm. replacement. And I think it had the opposite effect where it kind of put us in context where people are right. like, okay, this is where I'm going to go see these great bands and this great lineup and it's, you know, going to be a big mm-hmm. event. Secret Stages is where I, see, I almost did it again. Uh, mm-hmm. I almost said City Stages. Uh, <laughs> Secret Stages is where I go for, you know, a nice weekend out. I thought it doesn't cost me a lot of money mm-hmm. and I get to experience all these bands. Um, and you, I mean, you got to love music, you know, you got to yes. want to go see some music and you got to want to, yes. you know, have a little bit of an open mind and maybe you're probably going to see something you don't like and you're probably you're half a block away from something you probably would. So, well, you know, yeah. let that happen to me at Sloss Fest too. <laughs> yeah. And that's not Sloss Fest's fault. It's no. just different tastes. Yeah. Uh, so how has the festival evolved in the course of its six years? And is there anything we should look forward to in particular this year? Um... Well, a lot of the evolution for me is behind the scenes. Um, this I had 
you know, no event planning, no business training, mm-hmm. I mean, none of that stuff when this started. So things kind of going smoother behind the scenes mm-hmm. is the main evolution that I see. I know that's not really very exciting for your listeners, but um, I think that we've, uh, you know, this year, what I'm excited about is I think the festival is going to look a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, we have our outdoor stage again. Um, I'm really excited about the fact that you on 2nd Avenue, you've got three venues all that open up their back doors um, mm-hmm. and behind Rogue Tavern, if you can sort of picture mm-hmm. it, is where our outdoor stage will be. So okay. you have a really central area um, mm-hmm. where you can open, have an open container, walk out mm-hmm. of Pale Eddie's, watch music, walk back into Rogue Tavern, keep your beer if you haven't finished it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And I think we've you know made a big investment in sound and production, so I think everything's going to sound really good this year. Um, and, you know, all things that we've sort of done well in the past, but all that we can do a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to sell short the First Avenue venues, Matthews and M Lounge. Um, so I think like, I'm actually meeting with guys today to go in and make sure we've got our sound outfitted uh, and have it all ready to go. I think it's going to be a really good looking, good sounding festival. And I'm, I mean, there's, I'm pretty pumped about the lineup this year. I'm always pumped about it, but mm-hmm. I've, I, I've listened to more this year, I think, than in years in the past. So Fair. I think that's going to be. Cool. Very cool. So tell us where listeners can get tickets. Yeah. You know, we are coming right up on mm-hmm. it. You've got a couple days left by the time you listen to this. Yeah. Um, tickets are at secretstages.net, www.secretstages.net. Um, you can get day passes, weekend passes, or VIP passes. I think right now on the website they are 20, 35, and 75, respectively. Mm-hmm. They'll go up. Um, they'll stay online at that price, but at at the event they'll go up a little bit um and we'll also have venue passes uh, available like if you just want to go to row tavern you can pay the venue charge oh great uh, and just go to that venue if that's what you want to do very and cool. all the bands are we really try to make an effort to really push the bands you know these are bands that benefit from promotion i mean all bands mm-hmm. benefit from promotion but at this level especially right um trying to find people like you who discover mm-hmm. them and really mm-hmm. get into them so on the website, you can listen to, if they gave us videos, there's videos, there's bios, there's songs, there's a whole radio player. Um, so you can really do your research if you want to. Right. You're making um, it easy. Yeah. Is there anybody you're especially excited to see? Yeah, I've been answering that question with Sleepwalkers because, I mean, even though there's several, but they're, they're on the top of my list for, I mean, they're in the top five, but they're also on the top because we've tried to book them three times. Oh. This is the third time. I think it was last year mm-hmm. they were supposed to play the festival, and we did a showcase over the winter that they were going to play, mm-hmm. and then just something came up on their end. Like I think there was a health issue at one point, but um, they are fresh off of opening for the Lumineers on their last tour. Oh, cool. And I think they closed the outdoor stage on Friday night, and it's just good pop rock stuff. I'm, I'm excited for them. Yeah. I'm really excited for Love More, um, sort of hip-hop R&B, verging more toward the R&B side. Uh, Bunko Squad is a new band that uh, has um, a friend of mine, Jerry Chapman, plays guitar, and the uh, other guitar, Mark Kimbrell, mm. is uh, somebody who's been playing around town. And I just love his style, so they're put together kind of a fusion thing that I'm excited to see, too. Cool. I'm sure there will be lots more to oh, yeah. look forward to as well. So let's talk about you. You're going to tell us today about the book, album, and film that have most influenced you. What are those? Um, <laughs> I feel like I chose the most like banal things. Um, I did Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude for the book, uh, album um, Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, and then I picked Star Wars for my movie. Yes, this is going to be fun. <laughs> 
John, tell me about when you first encountered the book, 100 Years of Solitude. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to be able to be exact, but I think sometime in my early 20s, um, someone, you know, it's one of those books that, it's a pretty mm-hmm. classic book. Um, so I can't remember how it came, uh, who recommended it to me or why I read it. Um, mm-hmm. But I just, you know, I will... It's an interesting question when you say how what shaped you, and, right? Um, and so I was trying to answer that, and I, since we talked, I thought of so many other books that I really, mm-hmm. you know, gosh, that one is more intellectual. I should talk about that one, but <laughs> really, I just love the fact, you know, what I. It's been a long time since I read it, but just the idea that you have this whole world created mm-hmm. that pretty much lives by our natural physical laws, mm-hmm. and every once in a while you have like a flying carpet, right. or you know, some alchemy going on or some baby with a pigtail and Mm -hmm. ants devouring it, which I just sort of, you know, it's like, and you just kind of believe, yeah, that could happen in in the way he writes it. And I just, I've always really, uh, since reading that, you know, I don't know if I was drawn to that or Mm -hmm. that sparked this interest. I've always really liked those created worlds and, you know, reading about laws that govern this new world that's totally different from, you know, how we live. Right. Well, and one thing that I thought was really interesting you know, you often hear this book talked about as being a great example of magical realism. And I think that's a pretty good term because, mm-hmm. like you said, it mostly is reflecting the real world. Right. It is mostly reflecting lives lived in mm-hmm. Latin America, although it is set in a fictional place. Right. But then there are these elements that pop up. And one of the things that comes up in the book is ghosts of the past Mm -hmm. and you know the book structure is mostly linear but there Mm -hmm. is some circular nature to it and i think a lot about how our pasts shape us Mm -hmm. and i wondered if you saw any parallels or if that sparked any thoughts about your life and how it brought you to that point yeah um i guess the way that i the the part of sort of related to that that attracted me about the book is Mm -hmm. um I guess not so much the reflection aspect mm-hmm. is just how things, you know, are the same for so long. Mm-hmm. And then there's just sort of a monumental shift, you know, in that book. There's maybe a character goes off and you forget about that character. Then all of a sudden that character comes back. Um, you know, I know, like I said, it's been a while, but I know there's different, you know, wars that come and go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always really liked the idea that, uh, I don't know, relationships and things, they change. Like you think you know your relationship with your parents, you got it down. You know how you relate to each other, but you go from 15 to 20, it's vastly different. Oh, from yeah. From 20 to 25, it's vastly different. And I don't know if I know how to put it into words, but that sort of idea that, you know, things aren't, even when they seem static, they're really not. They're still mm-hmm. f- fluid things happening and changing, and maybe they don't manifest themselves for a while. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of what I got out of that book a lot, you know. Yeah. Um, well, in, the, in your early to mid-20s, that sort of, or for me at least, that was when I was starting to understand mm-hmm. those things yeah. for the first time. So it seems appropriate that that's when you came to the book yeah. as well. Yeah. That is um, a time of significant growth. Exactly. And a time that I am glad that I no longer <laughs> live in. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um, but then, of course, solitude is a big thing in the book. Mm-hmm. It's right there in the title. Right. And sometimes I think I might like a hundred years of solitude. But, right. you know, it also made me think some about the way that isolating ourselves can affect mm-hmm. who we are and what we experience, but then also the way culture 
mm-hmm. of influences us. Do you have any thoughts on how that um, relates to you? Well, I will say, I don't know if I would go into, for me personally, I, don't, I haven't spent a lot of time isolated mm-hmm. so much in the, in the real literal sense, but um, I was talking to somebody about this recently. You know, I grew up, um, I was five years behind my brothers, so mm-hmm. they were always together. They were a year apart. I was five mm-hmm. years. So I was not an only child by any means. I mean, I had great relationships with my brothers, but, you know, I left to entertain myself a lot. Right. Um, I chose, I played tennis, single mm-hmm. sport, mostly singles, mm-hmm. a little bit of doubles, but, you know, it's a not a team sport. And I've just never done a lot of the joining of groups and whatnot. So I do think that, you know, isolation, you know, the other book I was going to bring up was Siddhartha and just mm-hmm. the idea of like the single personal journey uh, right. and sort of being that kind of isolation definitely appeals to me or I, I relate to it, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, I think it's so interesting to consider how we experience that even with our, in our own family dynamics. Um, so my family, the three of a, three of the four kids are actually in about the same order, the same distance apart that you described. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm 35. I have a sister who is about to turn 34, and then my other sister just turned 29. Mm-hmm. And I remember for the longest time, Kristen and I, the 34-year-old, we kind of palled around together. Mm-hmm. And then when Cheryl came along, it became the two of them, and I felt like I was the one who okay. was sitting over here. and. I kind of preferred it that way mm-hmm. in some senses. I was like, you guys leave me alone. You're loud. Right. And, um, but it's just, it's fascinating how that shows up in different elements of life, whether that's in our workplace as some of us prefer to work solo, whether right. it's within our family dynamic. Yeah. It's all pretty significant to how it affects us. Yeah. I definitely feel like I go, it's funny because I definitely crave being around people and I, I think I'm a very social person in the mm-hmm. right mood, but, mm-hmm. um, the way my life sort of shakes out, I get plenty of time alone. So I'm mm-hmm. usually not, it, it doesn't, it doesn't come up too much. I'm like, Oh God, I gotta be alone or I gotta yeah. do the solitude. I just get it. Cause it's mm-hmm. just the way it seems to seem to work out. Yeah. Well, that works out nicely. Yeah. Well, and that, the last thing that I wanted to touch on was Gabriel Garcia Marquez's writing style. Mm-hmm. He incorporates so many different elements, different points of view, stream mm-hmm. of consciousness, cinematic techniques. Yeah. And I wondered if any of that has influenced you overtly or perhaps subconsciously as a musician, a songwriter. Um, maybe not consciously. I mean, I love his writing style. I've read several of his books. It's been a long time since I've read any of them. I've read his... Uh, I think the first half of his autobiography. I can't remember mm-hmm. if he ever finished it. He only went through like half his life. Um, but I do uh, really, like I said, I, mean, I dig the content of what he writes. Um, but to me, there's just sort of a straightforwardness to it, you know, mm-hmm. that I really appreciate, even though he is, you know, he doesn't get too flowery, flowery with the language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I appreciate that. I'm not, you know, if we were talking, maybe we get to Miles Davis, I can talk more deeply about the subject matter and the art. I'm not much of a, you know, real knowledgeable in the styles of writing. It's sort of like mm-hmm. when I used to sell wine, people were like, I don't know anything about wine. Well, do you like it? Then you like that wine. Yes, you know, exactly. It doesn't matter if it's if you're supposed to or if it's cheap or whatever. And his books is just like every time I go sit down to read one, it's, I just like this. I like the way it flows. Mm-hmm. You know, it just appeals to me. Yeah. And I, I love Latin American writers. There's a few that I've written or uh, read. For some reason, that culture is so vibrant, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's, I don't, I don't know, I think 
I'm not saying it's easier to write about, but the imagery mm -hmm. is sort of already so good that if you get someone writing about it well, it's really appealing. Well, and I think one of the secrets of good writing is that you're not thinking about the mechanics of it. Right. You're just caught up in what's happening yeah. in the book. And it sounds like that has certainly been your experience with this one. Mm -hmm. Well, I might have to read it again now that we're talking yeah. about it. So <laughs> well, good. That's like half my point in doing this podcast is making people read books. So, well, wonderful. Thanks so much. So when a festival organizer and a musician picks their favorite album, that carries a lot of weight. So how did you decide on Miles Davis's Kind of Blue? Well, I was really trying to answer the question of pick an album that shaped you. Um, and, you know, as a musician and as a festival organizer, I was like, man, I need to pick something a little more obscure, a little, you know, something a little, uh, I was going to say cooler. I don't know how you get cooler than Miles Davis. But, you know, that's one of those albums where it's sort of like, it's like the Led Zeppelin Four of jazz. You know, everybody's, you know, that ever has played jazz has gotten into that album, has covered that album. All the songs have been covered to death. But I picked it because it was... I got into jazz and into music, broader music than what I was listening to like in high school. I was big into Bob Dylan and the Grateful Dead and Crosby, Stills and Nash, a lot of 60s music. And one day my car got broken into and everything got taken, like all my tapes and everything that I was listening to got taken. And I spent that summer at Berklee College of Music um, and I just was like, well, I'm going to take the jazz stuff rather than the rock stuff because I already know a little bit about rock. And, you know, I think it was after my first... Uh, solo, the teacher looks at me and goes, you need to listen to some jazz. <laughs> you need to go out and buy this, 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 and this. And somewhere in there, I got a hold of, of that album. And if you're, you know, that sort of, uh, that era of jazz, that modal jazz that he did is really accessible. You know, the, the chords, the chord structures and whatnot are not as complicated. Um, that musicians were really freed up to play solos over a little bit more of a, uh, what, I don't want to say static, but kind of static chords with, it was more about the rhythm and all that stuff. And so, one, as a young musician, it was really easy to listen to and go, oh, I get that. And two, it was one of those albums where you put on that just appealed to something that, you know, that's why I love music, because I can't describe it in words. It was just immediate. Like, that sounds incredible to me. That takes me to another place. Like, I'm thinking about other stuff. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm writing on this music while I'm listening to it. Yeah, and I think that... Uh... I'm not a music scholar by any means, but when I listen to that album, you know, it just kind of like seeps down into you. Mm -hmm. But I think like, jazz is just this interesting art form because it's, you know, got to be one of the oldest continually played music styles, in, mm -hmm. at least in American history. Because, you know, people don't really do new ragtime sort of stuff right. anymore, but people keep doing jazz. But it's also kind of inaccessible. You know, I think most people like walking into a bar and hearing New Orleans-style jazz, but you can't really put your finger on what makes jazz great. Right. And so what is it about Kind of Blue that, you know, 60 years later still yeah. holds up for people? Well, I two answers. Um, one is it's just like a melody from start to finish. You know, you have the actual melodies for the songs, which are great, and then there's solos. You know, like that's sort of like the book we discussed. It's not an album that I'm listening to every day anymore and I've listened to it in a while but when I put it on I can pretty much sing along to the solos like I'm singing along to a journey song or something you know like because you've heard it so much and it's so the melodies are so clear and and it's uh, and another reason why I sort of picked why it shaped me is because um, you know 
at that time I was also reading, I read Miles' autobiography, and he makes a point in there about really being clear with what he would play and really clear with his tone and listening to Frank Sinatra and how Frank Sinatra was very, like, matter of fact. Like, he sang the words, he didn't get flowery, he was just really... And uh, then going back and listening to it again, you can hear that, and you can hear the the certainty that every note's played with, which as a musician, I don't always feel that way. You know, I'm not, I'm not a savant. I'm not a, uh, um, you know, elite musician like that, but learning from that and learning to just say, you know, you want to say something, say it, say it directly. If you say it wrong, say it right the next time, learn. But there was just a confidence in everything they did. And then I am just a, always been a huge fan of the bass, piano, drum, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, interaction as a way, uh, the way jazz does it and the way it just sort of, to me, that music, again, like, it probably became my favorite album or the album that shaped me on a bus ride that I took from Boston to Portland, which was fairly horrific when you're six foot four <laughs> riding in a Greyhound bus across country. Yeah, that's But I listened to that album, like, over and over the whole way, and just, like, the motion of the bus, the motion of the music, like, it just, I don't know, really, it spoke to me. <laughs> so I feel like good jazz has kind of become, like, this highbrow concept, you know, you you see movies like Whiplash, and you see the guy like destroying himself in order to right. play great jazz. And most prestigious people now tend to come out of art schools and mm -hmm. th these programs. But you look back at somebody like Miles Davis, and you know they kind of struggle and come up out of nowhere. Has jazz lost kind of those roots? Well, you know, I would maybe disagree with you a little bit about Miles Davis, simply because you know he I don't know his story real well, but I believe it, he came up in St. Louis. And he had a structured upbringing, you know, um, and he was learning the trumpet and he had, I don't know exactly what his schooling was, but he was, he wasn't just, you know, left to fend for himself. Right. And then when he went to Juilliard, he kind of eschewed the classical training, but he was out getting taught by Dizzy Gillespie and people like yeah. that, Charlie Parker. So, you know, whether you call it a formal education, I think it really, he had an education and that was one thing that led me to go to school actually um, and embrace that way of learning music because I you know in the end I did finally get a degree in music is because all these guys whether it was they had extensive training like you can find the guys that just did it themselves and played for 12 hours a day and, you know but I mean they had a real education and I would guess just sort of being in general judging our current state of things I would think that the time that it takes to become proficient in jazz is what keeps people from from doing it as much. And yeah. the technology now, you can make music so quickly and so easily. Um, and you can make stuff that sounds good. You know, you put a computer in the right hand, you can still make something beautiful. Just because it comes from a computer doesn't mean it's not beautiful. But you have, uh, you know, the other side of that is I'm going to sit for two hours every day and practice boring scales and learn arpeggios, and then I'm going to learn how to sing all that stuff. And I'm going to internalize it. I mean, it, to me, it... It seems like a monumental thing, and to some extent, I've done some of it. But yeah. I think to the modern student, it's like it's so not immediate that it's probably not appealing. Yeah, it's very daunting. I mean, I, I'm very lyrics driven. Like mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I love music all across all sorts of genres, but it tends to be lyrics that reach out mm -hmm. and grab me. But something about uh, Miles Davis and uh, Charles Mingus and some of these other greats, like they make me feel something the way that great lyrics do right. and I think it, you know that's daunting to think about even getting to that point but I want to ask do you have any good jazz uh, musicians lined up for secret stages 
Um, well, we tend not to get too many straight-ahead uh, jazz musicians. We do have, um, I mentioned Bunko Squad, which, you know, in the modern era, it's fusion jazz. You know, jazz kind of gets labeled over anything. It doesn't have lyrics and is instrumental and isn't classical. But uh, So that would be my first thought. And then there's a band called Mean Smoker, um, who has like Rob Alley and uh, Matt Devine, who are some of the couple of best jazz musicians in town. And I actually haven't listened to that yet, so I'm really excited to, to hear that. Um, and there's a band called Little Tybee, which uh, I only heard a couple of their songs, and they do have lyrics, but they, the instrumentals and stuff and the, uh, the interludes really remind me, again, of more of a fusion-style jazz, but, you know, that kind of proficiency. And... Yeah, cool. I think we're all excited to come check those out. Good. Thanks. All right, so Star Wars is your choice for the movie that shaped you. First off, did you did you grow up with it? Um, yeah, pretty much. I mean, it came out what seventy seven, so right. I was four when the first one came out. Okay. So it was. Uh, I was. I've been thought about. I've thought about this a few times. I don't know when I saw it. I don't remember like in that period of VHS came out or how I saw it. But I knew the whole story, and I had seen it when the second one came out. And I remember where I was when someone tried to tell me that Darth was Luke's father. I'm just like, no way. That's not happening. I can't I can't deal with that. But So so let's let's for for our purposes, we'll stick to the first movie, yeah. but we can certainly talk about the whole yeah. the whole thing because I mean it was up until this this unpleasant prequel thing happened, this was a a singular kind of story mm-hmm. that anybody who I think grew up in the late seventies, early eighties, mm-hmm. especially Probably particularly boys because they right. pushed it on us a little more. Yeah. This was one of those kind of iconic pieces of pop culture that we grew mm-hmm. up with. Did, did you? Were you a guy that had a lot of toys and lunch boxes and stuff? Oh yeah, Star Wars? I didn't have the lunch boxes, but I had the toys for sure. Um, it was uh, I was all in, you know, for for the I was young enough through all three of them to pretty much have some some sort of toy from all three movies. So I, I've got I've got a theory linking some of your stuff that you've talked about here okay. together. So particularly with hundred years of solitude, I, I think the, the the magical elements obviously are part of mm-hmm. Star Wars. But I, I think also you mentioned in that conversation the the appeal of stories like the story of Siddhartha to you and mm-hmm. this sort of singular yeah. hero's journey type thing, you know, and and how that kind of links to. How you grew up is you're you're a person who you felt like you were on your own path. Is that is that you think a part of the appeal for you specifically of, of Star Wars is this story of one guy having to figure it out for himself? Yeah, I was that was something I was thinking about when I thought about having this discussion. You know, what's what's something broader about Star Wars other than all the lights and sure. awesome effects and stuff? But yeah, that story it does has always appealed to me. Um, I don't know. Sometimes I think I'm stunted in that story. <laughs> like I, I like the idea of figuring things out, and, you know, uh, and it's still with me now. I'm, I'm in the middle of making an album, and a lot of the lyrical content is sort of about that, just about, you know, the search. I much prefer the search to the to the find, so to speak. But you still want that moment where you can pick up the the X-wing out of the swamp all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. There's got to be some growth. Right. <laughs> so so when you when you did kind of ultimately see this 
thing that was a big part of your childhood and a big story mm-hmm. for you start to be, get revisited in the late 90s and now they're doing it again, obviously. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about all of that? Are you a person who who likes returning to these yeah. old things and, and trying to bring them back? I think one of the things that appeals to me about Star Wars so much is the way they told that story. It was real. Uh, There's just a lot of economy in it, you know. Again, I mean, sort of back to talking about the way Miles Davis plays or the way um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez writes. I just feel like, and this comes from being an adult and watching it again, but they just, all the stuff they didn't show you and didn't tell you. I mean, if you watch that first movie, there's like not that many scenes, really. They just allude to this thing. And so the illusion of what Darth, you know, alluding to what Darth Vader is and how we got that evil is like, I want to know it, but now that I've gone back and found it, it wasn't as cool as just going, this right. is just a big, dark figure that's mm-hmm. evil, and you don't really get to know why. So It I, feels bigger when you never see what, what actually was behind it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely wanted to see that story. And, you know, for me, the, tr- the, the newest, or the prequels, it's like you put it all together, I go, yeah, I get, I get some of that story that I love. Mm-hmm. I get a whole lot of other stuff that didn't need to be attached to it. I think a lot of us agree. But, sure. So I do like going back and getting that. I crave it, you know. I crave finding out where they're going to take them. I get a little disappointed, you know, that um, I like to think that uh, Stephen, um, let's say Stephen King, George Lucas, mm-hmm. knows how it all goes, you know, and I want to know that story. I'm not really going to get to I'm going to get to hear it filtered somewhere else. Um, and maybe he lost the right to tell us that story with the first three, <laughs> uh, the newest of uh, the prequels. Sure. Um, but, you know, it's like I really love, like, the way television series are now, like something like a Breaking Bad. Yeah, it's five series, but it was a contained story. At a start and an end, they didn't get lost in trying to, which leads me to say, like, Lost did, the show, where you're just like, right. you're, just, you're just writing episodes, doing a great job, but you're just writing episodes and give us the candy yeah. every week. Whereas I felt like a lot of the series that I love is like, you just told a very contained story. And that's what I love about that first trilogy. Like, I'm too addicted to it and too into it not to get into the new stuff. But that was just such a nice contained story. Yeah, and when I think when you contain it too, when you when you know that there's a start and an end to it, that's when you can actually tell this story about transformation. Because if you don't if you don't know where you're going to stop, you kind mm-hmm. of can't do that narratively. Yeah. But that's obviously a big part of the appeal of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. You is it's this story where the guy starts one place and he changes, and we mm-hmm. get to see all of that happen and. You know, Breaking Bad, you, you threw in there as I mentioned, but that's very specifically another one that does mm-hmm. that, I think. Yeah. So that that seems to be kind of a theme there. So one other thing I want to definitely touch on here is the music of this movie. To me, I don't know that I can think of another mm-hmm. movie that benefits more from its music than Star yeah. Wars. It's just, it's such a huge part of what that movie is and why it feels like it does to us. It's funny, a movie like that, like, you know, I have friends and musician friends, and I have one of my best friends who used to be my roommate, they get real into scores, and real in, I mean, obviously I know John Williams, know what he did for that movie, but when I watch a movie like that, it just tends to become part of what I'm watching. Like, I don't, until multiple viewings, I don't detach the score, mm-hmm. you know, unless, you know, some shows or a movie, like, uses a song in a specific place right. that maybe I know from somewhere else or something like that, but... Uh, but it is, you know, I remember guys that when I was at school, you know, they were score nerds and they'd be sitting there watching uh, uh, another John Williams, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And they'd be talking, and then the music comes in here. Are you listening? And then this happens. Mm-hmm. And watching somebody do that 
kind of educated me like how important it's like I knew intrinsically a score is important but sort of watching how that gets done and, and people that were studying film scoring having them point out to me like see if that cut happens right there you know the violin comes in right there when that happens on screen thinking about it in that detailed way is is not something I do naturally but I, you know when I take the time to do it I enjoy it it's I think I think one cool thing about just to touch on what John Williams does so well with that score and a lot of the other ones too is it's it's such a huge part of how you end up feeling that narrative mm-hmm. that when you listen to the music out of context later it's still oh yeah you though you feel the story beats so I mean is that something that especially when when you ever work on music where you're not necessarily working with you know with lyrics where you're directly telling a story like that is that is that something that that plays into what you do as a musician this idea of like to, maybe it doesn't mean the same thing to everybody, but to you, these certain pieces of music t- kind of bring back a, a specific, you know, narrative mm-hmm. for you, or, or almost make you make you sort of tell a story for yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that when I make music, I'm not quite as uh, deliberate as a lot of folks. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a, I kind of do some trial and error stuff. I like to do find out where. Uh, you know, get musicians, very good musicians to play with me and give them a lot of freedom. So I'm not always trying to create like those kinds of things that you're talking about. But when I come back, like, I'm kind of referring to the thing that I just recorded, which was we just did a bunch of jams. And then I went back through them and turned them into songs, myself and a producer. And uh, trying to find, it was interesting, trying to find like basically what you're talking about. Like, where's a hook? Where's the thing that's sort of telling a story? Where's the motion in this? Uh, where's the thing that's going to make me want to listen to it again? Um, so I don't know if that was really answering your question, but uh, it's uh, you know trying to make music for something specific. Like I always thought, I think film scoring would be hard as heck for me because <laughs> yeah. I just I would love to try it someday. I should probably just so get a film and yeah. do it, you know. Um, because you know, like when you're in school, they give you all these rules and parameters, and you come up with something cool because you have to do it in the rules. Right. When you have no rules, sometimes it's hard to uh, get things done. So I should try it, but I think <laughs> I th- that sounds really difficult to me. Like if I were to ever reach a point of musicianship where I had any clout, and someone called me and said, "Hey, I want you to write a song for my new film," I'd, I'd be terrified. <laughs> I'd do it, but I'd be terrified. <laughs> All right, well, thanks to John Poor for joining us for this week's episode. I am Matt Scalisi. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Scalisi. I'm John Hammontree. You can find me on Twitter at, at John Hammontree and on Instagram at, at Birmingham and Tree. And I'm Carla Jean Whitley. You can find me on whichever social platform I feel like signing up for that day at Stay and Life. We'll be back to talk to y'all again soon. <laughs>